All right. All right, let's stand and start with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who whatever at present fillest all things, treasure of blessings, and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O good one. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. All right. It's good to be back with these lectures. Um, as you all know and have come here for the much anticipated Orthodox Survival Course. Um, the first of these that we're going to do today is just an introduction, basically, of what we're going to talk about and why we need to talk about it and um, why it's important. So we're going to go through a lot of different things. As you've seen from the schedule, um, we're going to go through history the next two weeks after this week, basically tracing why we have ended up where we are um, as a society. We're going to go through uh, different phenomena. As you see, we're going to talk about um, UFOs and um, transhumanism and all these things that might seem very uh, conspiracy theory-ish, but nevertheless are um, very pertinent for us to talk about because there are things that, that are floating through modern culture and have a certain kind of consequence and outcome. Um, we're going to be talking about ecumenism and the rise of the Antichrist and the mark of the beast as we get uh, closer um, to the end of the series. So a lot of the books that I'll be diving into, I've put on this book list for you um, that you can go through, um, buy stuff if you want to. I'm not, you know, it's not like required reading or anything like that, but, it, but, it's, but it's a list that I think that everybody should be familiar with. Um, these these books are, um, are really great works, and they help us to navigate through, through modern times. So um, today's talk is going to be called The Orthodox Worldview, which is going to be heavily, heavily taken from, sometimes in verbatim, um, as much as I can with paraphrasing, from Father Seraphim Rose's talk, um, which is titled the same, The Orthodox Worldview. These are going to be all based on basically Father Seraphim's work, which he did, the original um, survival course for Orthodox Christians. He did this in 1979 and 1980. He died in 1982, so this is towards the end of his life. And um, he gave these as a series of lectures at retreats. Um, a lot of the things that he talks about when one reads this survival course, you can find it as a PDF online. It's not published yet because it's not edited, um, but you can read an unedited version of it online. Um, it's very striking to read it because he's pointing out things that were going on in the 80s, and I don't know exactly what he would be saying and how he would be feeling about what is going on uh, today. Today, But some of the things he says is, are very prophetic, very prophetic. Um, you can read them in that and also in these other books from him, um, Orthodoxy and the Urge in the Future especially, uh, we're going to get heavily into um, nihilism, um, which is kind of his work before he was, he was a monk. Um, even when he was a, a, a catechumen and a layman, uh, he worked on this uh, work, nihilism, which is taken from a broader work that he was working on called The Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Man. Um, so Father Seraphim Rose, if you don't know who he is, just uh, you know a brief kind of um, 
uh, you know, a brief life of him. He was a, he was born a Southern Californian boy to an American family, grew up um, as a Protestant. Um, he, he eventually left Protestantism, became an extreme atheist. He was really deep into uh, uh, Nietzsche's philosophies and German philosophies. He learned German just to read these things in their original language. He was extremely a uh, bright person. Um, he just felt that American Christianity was just another form of American materialism and fell out of love with it and um, became very disenchanted by it. He eventually was kind of seduced by this holy figure, Alan Watts, which um, came to his campus as a, and he heard him talk as a, a college student. Eventually, when he graduated college, he went to study under Alan Watts in San Francisco at this uh, kind of religious academy that, that this supposed guru had founded and um, was really deep into Eastern mysticism, later got deeper into it, into ancient Taoism, and learned Chinese to try to, um, under another professor, to, to translate the, the Tao Te Ching into English. And uh, he was just very involved in trying to find um, truth, trying to find truth and traditional Christianity. Eventually he found orthodoxy, um, became the first uh, Orthodox monk that's a, that was an American to establish a monastery in, in, um, in America, in California. And he worked his whole life publishing stuff, translating stuff from Russian, um, things that were never in English before, services, lives of saints, uh, theological works, and also at the same time doing that were, was going through um, all of these different spiritual currents that were moving around in the 60s and 70s and writing about them and forming orthodox people about them how to how to grapple and deal uh, with with modern life at that time so all of these uh, lectures will be based a lot on his on his works this is father seraphim when he became a monk in his cell uh, that he built by himself um, but basically he used to hold these lecture series or these retreats up at the monastery where young people would come, they would camp, and they would do services, and then they would have uh, a little bit of a taste of monastic life and services in English. Uh, at that time, it was basically unheard of to, to, know, to hear orthros or even like um, parts of the liturgy and um, the other service, monastic services like midnight office and, and things like that in English. At the time, one of the only places you could hear them was at this monastery. And so people would be immersed into a, a monastic life. They would, they would participate in everything with the monks, eating with them, uh, listening to the lives of the saints as they ate, and then going outside and doing these, uh, these lectures together and asking him all of these questions. He was just an, a br brilliant man. His mind was, um, was just, he, was, he, he would probably be a genius if he had taken a test and, you know, got got, um, you know, scored and all that kind of stuff. But, but nevertheless, he was also a spiritual giant. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is uh, through his uh, vision and his, and his mind. So why is it important to talk about uh, forming an orthodox worldview today? And what does that mean, right? Now, in past times, we wouldn't be talking about this at all because it would just be part of daily life, Right? So 100 years ago, 150 years ago, if you live somewhere in Russia or in Greece, in an Orthodox country, all of your life was imbued with the Orthodox faith. 
It was to say, it's, they say that Moscow itself had 40 times 40 churches with all daily services, morning and evening, and everything was permeated with Orthodox life. There was over a thousand monasteries established officially in Russia. You know, and in addition, there was other groups and monasteries out in uh, the wilderness of Russia. It was very common in Russia for somebody's family to either have a monk or a nun or a priest or a bishop within their family heritage, just like it's uh, many Russians have a martyr now in their family uh, heritage because of um, the slaughter that happened after communism took over. So back then, it wasn't an important thing to talk about having an orthodox worldview. Life was just orthodox. Your conversations were orthodox. Your daily life was orthodox. Many people, before they went to church, they went to service in the morning. When they came home from work or after dinner, they would go to service at night. And their whole life was permeated around this orthodox ethos, with this orthodox ethos. So, and also death was very, uh, you know, prevalent. Life expectancy was not something that, you know, we, like we think of today, before the advancement of modern medicine. So death was very um, commonplace. So it also, you know, really grounded the church's outlook on being otherworldly, uh, expecting the next life, and preparing oneself for death. So all these things um, were uh, struck um, some sobriety into the people. And now life is very different, very different. Today, we, uh, our orthodoxy is like a little island amidst a great sea of different ideologies um, and different lifestyles and different ways just of how to think and interact with the world. And more and more our island is becoming smaller and smaller in this great vast ocean that is the world. So unfortunately, values of this world have been going astray from an orthodox, holistic outlook and you know uh, life so it's important that we have to be uh, you know we have to be engaging with these things and we have to be aware of these things and we have to be aware of where the world is going and where it is headed and the ways in which it wants to drag us along with it so we have to have a, an awareness to learn and to deal with matters of our age in an orthodox manner in order to survive Today, we, ha we cannot be crippled in some kind of abnormal way or live some kind of abnormal life. We have to develop an outlook on the world that is permeated with the same outlook as the church fathers. We have to be aware of the demands also that the world makes upon our souls. And we have to be realistic about them and engage with them and answer them in an orthodox manner. You know, when we go to... Uh, we, when we uh, not go to, hopefully, but when we, when we hear about other faiths and how they're engaging in the world, they have different answers than what the church fathers would give to us. They have different ways with engaging in the world that maybe do not fit the ways in which an Orthodox person should engage with the world. So we have to have our own outlook and not borrow from these other sects 
to their sectarian um, ideologies and philosophies and um, try to marry them with our orthodoxy. Because as we see, whatever is not orthodox many times leads us away or astray and doesn't really fit very well with our orthodox outlook on life. Some of it does, and we'll talk about that. Some of it does not, right? So, and we also must be guarded because our faith is in, attacked in a clandestine manner, right? So our faith is attacked in ways that maybe are undetected to us. This is just a slide of a painting in Russia, what life was like, right, before its fall. A family with an icon corner sitting and eating together. Men who are monks or nuns or priests in their families eating together. All of life was just permeated with, with our faith. a little bit out of focus. This is St. Ignatius Branchininov. He says, The spirit of the age will reveal the apostasy. Study it if you wish to avoid it, if you wish to escape this age and the temptation of its spirits. So it is important for us to study it, to know what is coming at us. To not just, you know, focus on small little church issues and be blindsided by something in the world. We have to know what's coming at us, engage with it head-on and in a realistic manner. The end times, it seems that the persecution will be even more clandestine. So Bishop uh, Augustinos, he talks about how the martyrs of the first centuries and the martyrs of the Turkish yoke and the martyrs of the communist yoke suffered under an overt attack that was bloody and it was evident and that the world learned that whenever it did this to Christians that the church would rise up even more stronger because it had martyrs, right? Tortullian said that the church is built on the blood of martyrs. So in the last times, the attack upon the church will be secret. And it will come in ways that we do not detect it. Even the faithful will be led astray. So it's important for us to know what is going on in the world. It is not enough anymore for us to just let the world be as it is and seclude ourselves to our little island and not know anything that is going on around us. In some cases, this might work for people, but particularly in our case, we live in the world whether we like it or not, and so we have to engage with it. This is how we are going to survive in this life. We have to know our faith well enough to be able to look at the world through the eyes of the Father's and keep and preserve our spiritual life and our traditions. So what has contemporary life become? 
If we contrast it with the age that we were talking about before, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, it has become completely absurd. Everything has been tipped upon, uh, upside down, on its head. Right? Public and private behavior, the idea of obedience, of authority, all these things have been tipped upside down, and we live in a completely backwards way. If anybody's serious, like Father Seraphim said in, in his talk, if anybody's serious came from one of these cultures to our uh, society today, they would think that they have stumbled upon a land of imbeciles. That's what he says. And it's very true. Because life was very serious. It was taken in a spiritual manner. There was sobriety because death was always around. Everybody's life was permeated with the lives of the saints, the hymns of the church, the gospel readings of the day. You know, so many people, you know, in confession talk about how, you know, hard it is uh, to keep the gospel readings every day or to keep the lives of the saints readings every day. And yes, of course, that's, it's hard because this is not how we used to live. We used to go to church every morning and hear the gospel reading in the life of the saint. We used to go to church every evening and hear the hymns for the saint or prepare for the next day and know about the saint when we go to sleep and tell our family about it and talk to our children about it. You know, this is how we used to live. Now we are doing it on our own, in our own isolated uh, ways. And because, so it becomes very difficult. It becomes harder to keep these things. But now everything has become a, a search for fun and self-centeredness and entertainment, right? So we live in spoiled and pampered times. And most of the time when we're raised as children... We are given whatever we want. It's enough for a kid to say, I don't want to do it, and the parents you know, give in and allow them to do it. My, my wife had this very interesting experience when we went to seminary in, in New York, and she was part of this mother's uh, club that met outside of the seminary with secular people, and she was astonished because some of these people, they were offended that she told my son to say goodbye. You, know, you should never force your kid to say anything. You know, they couldn't even they couldn't put their kid. They said that, that my wife couldn't put her kid on timeout in their presence, uh, tell them to say thank you in their presence or anything like that because it was spoiling the way that they parented their children. So in many ways, kids are raised in this spoiled way, and then what happens later in life? They become adults that want adult toys. And so life is just incredibly engulfed in this materialistic attitude. We have to have many things to keep us distracted, to keep us entertained. And we all know that at the end of the day, none of it suffices. And so we want more and more and more and more. Moving from one thing to the next. Now it's even easier with digital technology because we can binge watch shows we can pull up whatever we want uh, to listen to or to watch just from our, our handheld devices wherever we're at and distract ourselves. Even 20 years ago, this was not possible. And I would love to see what Father Seraphim would have said today. 
The other problem is our perpetual adolescence. That especially men in these times live their adolescence in much further than they ever should. Much further than they ever should. And so we have this like big kids club. We never grow up. You know, the Peter Pan syndrome. Never grow up. And so this has devastating effects on the soul. Because the soul then never grows up either. And it becomes unformed. And it's not able to deal with either itself or the world around it in a realistic manner. So especially today when we have children who are on their devices 24-7 and not ever really engaging with real people and not engaging with real ideas, but more just facts, 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 the lowest form of you know, uh, information. They're not able to grapple when it comes to real life to suffering, to anxiety, to making hard decisions. And it leaves the soul unformed. Because then the soul is not able to decipher what is real spirituality and what is not. And then the soul goes to look for things that please it, just like the body does. So this is why, you know, we wonder, oh, why, why is Foursquare Church so popular? And why are Eastern cults so popular? Why are all these faiths besides ours so popular? The reason why is because we live in a time where people have unformed souls. And so when this me generation turns to religion, it turns to the things that will please it that will entertain it, that will stroke its ego, and all these other kinds of things that don't particularly fit well in with a faith that requires us to fast and to stand for a long time and to say prayers every day and all these other kinds of demands that orthodoxy makes upon one. But we also have to recognize that some of these things about the world are also about ourselves. And we can't just point the finger all the time as Orthodox Christians. We also have to recognize that the world makes demands on our souls in ways sometimes that we do not detect. Totalitarian demands on our souls. We cannot go to the grocery store without being pumped with different ideologies or ways of looking at the world, either by announcements that are made or music that plays. If a soul is sensitive to lust, for instance, it's very hard to even go to a grocery store because the music that is on entices and feeds this addiction. Even when we are not looking for it and we're not even completely aware of it. We can't even go to campgrounds anymore without, you know, getting some silence 
because radios are now everywhere and phones are everywhere. So we're listening to this garbage music all the time and this entertainment that feeds negative, negative things and negative uh, passions that cause death to the soul. So we cannot escape music, billboards, television, all of these things are pumped into us with a certain beat to drive out our Christian faith. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes not on purpose. But it's, whether it's on purpose or not doesn't really matter. The reality is still the same, right? The other thing that we have to recognize is that this concept of the you know, gulag in Russia, for instance, this concept of overt persecution is the same as we are experiencing today right now. Yes, we are not being put in camps and killed by, by the thousands and millions. But we have a, the same ideology that is pushing God out of our lives. Because in Soviet Russia, what do they say and what do they teach children? It's your grandma's faith and it's old-fashioned. It makes too, de- too many demands on you and you're not able to be free and live your life freely. All these concepts that were taught and pushed down the throats of people in Soviet Russia are the same concepts that we are fed today. That we are fed today. So we're not going to a physical gulag, but we are going to a gulag of the mind. A gulag of the mind. So we have to be aware of what's coming. And we have to be aware of the way in which we are enticed and pulled by these things in the world. Engage, engage with them in a real way. So spiritual life in contemporary, a context of contemporary reality. So it's important for us to realize as we try ourselves to lead a Christian life today that the world which has been formed by our pampered times makes demands on the soul, whether in religion or in secular life, which are what one has called, one has to call totalitarian, right? So there are two different errors of Orthodox Christians today that Father Seraphim identifies in his time. And I think that they're still true today. We have to be real that this is where we begin. We know that life is completely divorced from our faith. And the world is giving us something different than what we preach here in the church. But we have to be realistic that this is where we start, right? That no matter how much the world has influenced us through our life, we have to begin in this context. We have to live and we are still called to be saints within this world and in this context. So two different ways, Father Seraphim says, when we try to achieve this or live as Orthodox Christians, we go into error. And the first one is serving two masters. Living here on Sunday and then being a different person throughout the week. Trying to mix 
worldly values with orthodox values which don't really mix at all. Father Seraphim said, orthodoxy is life. If we're not living orthodoxy, we're simply not orthodox, no matter what formal beliefs we hold. So when we're living two different lives and we're trying to keep our our feet in two different worlds, it leads to disaster. It leads to a type of schizophrenic spirituality. Right? We're pulled one way and another way. And very often what happens, especially, you know, that I see today, what often happens is that the worldly values, when they come into contrast with the spiritual values, worldly values always seem to, you know, be more important than what the church is teaching if we're living this kind of life. Because... That's old, you know, same, same, same trope. It's old, it's old-fashioned. It doesn't know how to engage with today. It's grandma's faith, right? And this you see as an academic, you know, the, the trend in modern American seminaries and, and Orthodox academia. Not all the time. There are good people that are Orthodox theologians and academics in modern day, but... You know, for the, for the most part, the majority is that we're, enga- we're engaging with orthodoxy in a bookish way in order to say that we're orthodox, but the ideologies of the world seem to always, you know, push themselves and imprint themselves um, upon our faith um, in, in, in the writings of some of these people, right? We see it all the time. So trying to live with our faith in two different worlds is not something that we can do. It leads to death, spiritual death, and when we're on those paths, we're spiritually dying. The other error is ultra-orthodoxy, right? So learning about the orthodox faith, being uh, completely orthodox, learning to make our cross in the right way, reading all of the Hezekistic fathers, and all of these other kinds of things, being you know, so involved in the liturgics and the way that the censer is or the brocade of the, of the vestment is or whatever it may be, while these are all good things and they have their place and should always have their place, nevertheless, if, we're, if those are the things that we're attracted to in our faith, then we're not going to survive these times. Because these things are externals of the faith, and if we don't have them imprinted in the heart, we will not have a ground to stand on when we, be, when we come under fire with foreign ideology that causes death to the soul. So to live in a, an ultra-Orthodox life is also an error, and it leads to death. Spiritual dryness. and still an undeveloped soul. It is the same trap that young people fall into when they go after a faith that gives them entertainment. Because this kind of outlook on orthodoxy is an outlook that is just self-pleasing and not serious. 
and not meeting the demands that orthodoxy requires of us. So gaining this awareness, how do we gain an orthodox awareness? The life around us, abnormal though it is, is the place where we begin our Christian life. Whatever we make our life, we make of our life, whatever truly Christian content we give it, still has something of the stamp of the me generation on it. And we have to be humble enough to see this. This is where we begin. So like I said, this is where we begin. We see where the world is. We see the... Um, pitfalls that we can fall into, right? And we have to start to form an orthodox worldview. So we have to face it squarely and realistically and to have an open mind. We have to know what is influencing us and how to fight back against it with an orthodox approach or an orthodox ethos, an orthodox life. We have to be acquainted with the best products of secular culture. And by that, I mean we have to be acquainted with the tools that secular culture has given us in order to form the soul. Father Seraphim Rose, when young orthodox converts would you know, come to him and say, you know, I'm reading the Philokalia and the writing of St. Maximus the Confessor and, you know, all these Hesychistic Fathers and all these other things, and they would think themselves to be so great. He would tell them, go home and read Charles Dickens, right? Because we live already an abnormal life, and so we have to be, we have to come into it with the realization that this is where we need to begin. We have to form the soul, and if we can't form the soul in just a regular way, say like in the book of David Copperfield, right? If we can't form the soul, if we can't uh, recognize our own emotions, control ourselves, know what virtue is, have work ethic and discipline in our life, then we will not get anywhere when we read advanced spiritual books because it is harder for them to become a reality on the heart, right? Because we don't learn these things about the fathers and the writings of the fathers just to have a lot of knowledge about it. We, re we read them in order to practice it. Some of these fathers debated for a very long time whether they should even print these works to be read by lay people and from people in the world, even priests in the world because of this very concept. Should we print it so that people become bookworms and have some academic knowledge about, you know, this deep spiritual, these deep spiritual states and spiritual life? Or should we keep them kind of hidden because we don't want them, we don't want to cast pearls before swine? So while it is good to have these books and to read them, and we should be reading them and be aware of them, at the same time, we have to approach them with, from our own you know, where we are at realistically, right? So we have to appropriate secular works in order to form the soul. 
it is very, very important for Orthodox Christians to become acquainted with classical music and classical art and classical philosophy. These are all the fathers were steeped in, many of the saints steeped in. It is not that we just live on an island and we're completely deaf and blind to anything outside of our church. We have to be people who take, you know, St. Paisios talked very, uh, you know, all the time about being a bee and getting nectar in a field, you know. A bee will always find a flower in, in you know, in, in, a, um, in a dump. And a fly will always find, you know, that you know what in a field of flowers, right? So we have to be people who are like bees, and we have to look at our modern culture and be able to appropriate the things that are nectar for spiritual nourishment. Now, unfortunately, that is getting harder and harder to find. But fortunately, we have cultures of the past that help to provide the sustenance that we cannot find today. And many of the philosophies that are prevalent today, that drive our modern culture, which we'll talk about, base themselves or engaged with classic philosophy and classic art and classic music. And so when we get to know these things, we can develop some kind of fight against the things of modern life that pull us away from truth and beauty. Another thing that Father Seraphim said, not in this lecture, but that truth is a person. It's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It is a person who is Christ. So when we find a little bit of truth in something, we have to know that that truth is Christ. But we also have to be aware that the devil loves to mix truth in with lie in order to make it very, very, you know, um, appetizing for us to eat and, and, and to digest. Father Seraphim also says, which is in your paper here, Therefore, our battle against the spirit of the world, we can use the best things of the world that the world has to offer in order to go beyond them. Everything good in the world, as if we're only wise enough, if we're only wise enough to see it, points to God and to orthodoxy, and we have to make use of it. So we have, have to make use of anything that we can. But we also have to be aware that what the world gives us around us seldom helps us and almost always hinders us. And this is what he's, ta he's talking particularly here about the upbringing of children. That our children need to be brought up in classic culture, to know classical music, to know classical art, to know classical philosophy and works of literature to be familiar with great literary works like the Iliad or Homer's Odyssey and be able to recognize Christ in them. Because there's a lot that even the fathers use from these great works in order to convey orthodoxy to a population. 
in order to take really high spiritual concepts and write them in a way using literary figures in order to show the reality of, of these, these high concepts that maybe one wouldn't understand if he were to read it, say, like with St. Maximus Confessor, for instance. It's very hard sometimes to decipher exactly what he's saying, but when he uses analogies, it becomes very apparent, right? So with our children, those of us who are parents and those of us who are grandparents, we have to be people who, you know, give our children as much beauty and love as possible, especially when it comes to raising them in a life that is steeped in things of this world that will benefit them, you know? It's not enough to just be orthodox and to read them the lives of the saints and hope that they'll take all of these things, you know, by osmosis. You know, we have to give them the tools in order to engage with their culture and to, and to go head, you know, head first in a normal way with it and not be some weirdo, you know. They have to be able to, you know, have the stamina not to be enticed by certain kinds of music and certain kinds of art and certain kinds of, you know, li literature and ideologies. When they're raised in these things, on classical music and these firm foundations of, of, of certain truths within the, this kind of music, then, you know, other things become very distasteful and they lose their seduction. And it's the same with us, not just children. We have to be steeped in these things and use whatever we can from the world in order to inoculate ourselves against seduction. So this I printed in a bulletin for you. Hopefully you read the entire article. If not, you know, I think I sent it in an email. Metro Metropolitan Athanasius of Limassol, who is a living um, metropolitan today and he's very well known and um, extremely holy man. This is he's writing during the time of the Greek financial crisis. But basically, he's saying, you know, the aim is not just to survive through a financial and global crisis, but to change our way of thinking, our minds, to repent. Whatever, whoever manages this, it means that he has done some proper work on himself and has transformed the present hardship into a spiritual struggle. Unless this happens, we will forget everything and return to our ways when things get better. This is... You know, this is something that we really need to hear, especially today. We have to transform our way of thinking. We have to be transformed people. We have to take the hardship around us and use it to catapult us into, into a spiritual life, into a transformed and changed life. So we'll not survive if we have knowledge on narrow church subjects. But we need to view the world through our orthodoxy and recognize how deep our orthodoxy actually is. Which unfortunately, many of us, you know, only scratch the surface of our faith, especially as modern people. We do not know exactly how far we are from the feats of the saints of old.
Father, Father Seraphim says, one is orthodox all the time, every day, in every situation of life, or one is not really orthodox at all. Our orthodoxy is revealed, not just in our strictly religious views, but in everything we do and say. Most of us are very unaware of the Christian religious responsibility we have for the seemingly secular, secular part of our lives. The person with a truly orthodox worldview lives every part of his life as orthodox. So how do we form this worldview and how do we nourish it? A few things. We have to be in constant contact with the church and her way of life. This may, might seem very, very, you know, apparent. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious. You hear me talk about it all the time. You hear other priests talk about it all the time. We have to be more engaged with the church and her way of life. This is how pe Orthodox people did it and Christians did it for centuries. It's that we have become this kind of segmented, you know, or the, the divided culture and we try to live our orthodoxy in our own ways at home, and they come together on Sundays. Now, one quote from Father, Father Josiah Trenum that I love is, I only go to church on Sunday, said no saint ever. <laughs> right? And this is, kind of, this is kind of something we borrowed from, borrowed from Protestantism in some ways, that uh, Sunday worship is the kind of the most, the pinnacle, and that's kind of like all we do is we come together and have a Bible study on Sundays and maybe get together once uh, another time during the week. But this is never how Orthodox were supposed to, are supposed to live their life, and this is never how the church was ever structured. That's why there's commemorations every day. That's why there's Synod Sermon readings every day. That's why there's Gospel readings every day. There's all the hymns circulate and change every day, you know? The reason why is because we are in contact with this every single day. You know, it's not enough for us to just be Orthodox and come to church on Sundays. We really need to be steeped in uh, an Orthodox life. And his quote might, might seem, you know, really rigorous. You know, if we're not speaking in an Orthodox way, we're not Orthodox, right? But if we, if we look at the truth of the matter, you know, what he's saying is true. It is true because orthodoxy demands us to live as saints. It demands us to live a holy life, not just to develop a, an ideology, not just to develop a philosophy or a way to look at life, but to develop an actual life, a way in which the heart moves, a way in which we think and engage with other people, a way in which we live our life from day to day. So that's number one. We have to be more in contact with the church. We also have to have a correct attitude towards spiritual nourishment and draw inspiration from it for survival. This attitude means that we must be down-to-earth people, right? We can't just be people walking around thinking that we're transfigured, you know, everywhere. You know, and we can't always be talking about, you know, the lofty miracles of saints and 
kind of trying to draw people in through, you know, signs and wonders. You know, orthodoxy is very grounded. It's very practical. It's a way of life that is not just, you know, God is not just up in the sky somewhere and we're drifting around in the clouds, you know, with him. No, orthodoxy is grounded here, material. And it's supposed to sanctify and transform every aspect of ourselves and our life. So we have to be down-to-earth people. We can't be weirdos, you know, just always talking about church canons and, you know, rare saints and all these other kinds of things, you know. We have to be people that, that, that are real people, that engage with people naturally, but in a transformed way. We cannot be self-centered, but we need to be deep people. I think that's very obvious what we talked about earlier. We can't be people who are just all about ourselves. We have to take our orthodoxy in a serious way and dive deep into it. We don't do it just to, you know, say that we're the most perfect historically, liturgically, theologically. All these things are great about us, you know. Our Lord has preserved his church from the gates of hell, right? And we have all these things. We have history on our side. We have theology on our side. We have the customs on our side, all those things. But, you know, we can't just be people who are obsessed with all of that and never dive into the heart. It is not enough for us to, like, come out of the baptismal font and get the orthodox stamp and, you know, and and that's it. We're like this niche culture now, you know, which is very popular among young people, you know, to find a niche thing that we can, you know, put ourselves in and to find some identity. Orthodoxy is an identity, but it's also a way of life. We have to be loving and forgiving people. We can't just be people throwing church cannons around at people or calling people crazy converts or seeing people do certain orthodox actions that we think are too rigorous, you know, and write them off. Or people that are looking at people that are too, maybe, liberal. They didn't make their sign of the cross at that time in the service. Or they didn't bow to that icon. Or they didn't venerate the icons in a certain manner in the church. You know, this this is a prevalent outlook with many people in many places. And we have to run from it, far from it. Our disposition must be innocent, not high in the clouds, of sophistry and, um, and being professional orthodox people. And we cannot make this world our home. And we should never feel at home in it. Our current situation is very good in many ways because it has shaken us out of our comfortability. But the truth of the matter is that we should never feel comfortable here. But always expecting and preparing for the world to come. Hold on to your faith firmly and remain immovable 
in the traditions of the Divine Fathers. For we have arrived at the age that even the strong in faith are lost. Toil by studying and learning, for everything good is achieved with hard work and suffering. We shall not feel the labor of virtue when we consider the clouds of martyrs and saints, and in the future we shall be glorified. This is Elder Philotheos Zervakos, who's probably going to be another modern saint canonized soon. I have no doubt about it. So we have to keep our traditions, not in a weird way. And all the things that we talked about in this life that are against us seem pale in contrast with the ways that the fathers had to deal with certain aspects of their life. We can apply everything from the lives of the saints to how we experience modern life today. We're not lost. And we're not in some time that our church has no answers for. It has all of the answers and all of the medicines for the ways in which the world has damaged us or seeks to damage us with. So recognizing the signs of the times. This is a very important thing. But it's important in a way that it shouldn't strike fear in us and anxiety. It shouldn't be a heavy burden on us. If it is, we are taking it in the wrong way. Our Lord asked us to be aware of the signs of the times and to not be neglectful. He asked us to watch just as we watch the leaves of trees ready to give fruit, and we know when a harvest is coming. We need to be mindful also of the signs of the times. We have to be aware of the abnormality of this world, the subhuman ways in which we live. Never has there been the acceptance of such weird and abnormal behavior as we see today. Never. in human history. Wars and rumors of wars. This becomes something that is commonplace, and not only commonplace, but becomes even more and more destructive, with more and more lives lost and more technology that will annihilate many lives in seconds. Humanity has never experienced this until the last hundred years. Widespread natural disasters, disease, obviously. Other natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcano eruptions, all these kinds of things. Increasing centralization of information and power over the individual. When Father Seraphim wrote this and he talked about this, he was talking about the supercomputer in Luxembourg, right? Now we have it in our pockets, and even more so. And now we are tracked where we are at. 
or we have the ability to be tracked wherever we're at. We also, all of our likes and dislikes and our preferences are all stored and mined and used by consumer culture, right? So this centralization of information and power over the individual person is something that we need to take with caution because this is eventually how the Antichrist will mark everyone. That is not to say that there is a specific mark that the fathers talk about or that we are going to be marked tomorrow or if you have a cell phone, you're marked or anything like that. But it is to say that when we see an, in, an increase in how power is used over the individual in public and private domain, becoming more and more centralized in the hands of certain kinds of companies or governments or people. We just have to be aware, you know, of these things. They're parts of the signs of the times. Birth pangs, if you will. And the demands that are becoming increasing, you know, that we have to, we, you know, we, we are obligated to do certain things in order to participate in society. Now, this is already happening in other countries with this disease. You know, there are certain obligations that people have to make in order to participate in, in society, right? So that's not to say that, you know, where tomorrow is going to be the end of the world. I mean, it could be, but I'm not saying it, it's going to be. You know, we can't be people who are freaking out about it all the time, but we have to just be aware, you know, in a normal way. The multiplication of false Christs and false antichrists. Those who show forth signs and wonders attracting mass followings. I mean, this is apparent in the last, you know, 70 years with the amounts of cults that uh, grow, have grown and, you know, especially widespread in America with people who are, you know, disenchanted with, you know, Father Seraphim was one of them, disenchanted with, you know, modern American Christianity and find themselves at the feet of some guru, you know, and eventually leads to some kind of mind control and the control of, you know, every aspect of their life. These people become, you know, self-proclaimed, you know, uh, second Christ and all these other kinds of things. I mean, these people are around in the time of the apostles as well. But we just have to be aware of it. Obsession over signs and wonders. So obsession over alien life forms. Some of it's a little funny to, you know, talk about, you know, alien life forms, like, you know. But actually over the past few months, this is becoming an increasing stories on mainstream media. I mean, it was really big during Father Seraphim's time. You're talking about the end of the 70s here. But it's made its way back into our, into our consciousness. And people are talking about it. The last few years, you know, what was the thing a few years ago? Like the occupation of Area 51 or whatever, you know. And now, you know, supposedly the FBI ha or whoever is leaking files about these, you know, extraterrestrial beings and ships and all these other kinds of things, you know, s supposed evidence. 
You have to be aware of what thing, these things are. And we'll talk about it when we get to that in a few weeks, but I mean, you know, as a spoiler, they're demons. You know, as a spoiler. That's it. But, but, but people are, you know, obsessed with these things, and they can become obsessed. They become, you know, um, consumed with these ideas that lead them, that lead them astray and lead them vulnerable to control and the kind of the um, you know the 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 whims of how how the demonic realm wants to shape and to destroy someone's soul. So we have to recognize these times in sobriety. In sobriety, Father Seraphim says the apocalypse is now. It is not something that we should think of as happening sometime in the future. It is the apocalypse is now. And what he means by that is to be always ready. So many of the fathers talk about how these times are our last times. There have been other times in the church when the fathers have used this, you know, these, this vocabulary. But we're living in an age that is, we have to admit, very, very unique. So Christ is calling us, even in this age, he is calling us. And we can't be frightened by the signs of the times, and we can't be driven to anxiety about the signs of the times. But we have to be sober Christians, full of love and waiting for our bridegroom. We have always taught this, no matter what time or epoch, or whatever it, we, the, the person is living in. The church has always taught, be faithful and anticipate Christ coming next minute, right? Do not be a foolish virgin. Don't waste your oil. Don't neglect your lamp. But always be ready. Always filling it. Always trimming the wick. You know, the fathers talk about we fill our, the oil is our virtues, and the trimming the wick is our asceticism. And we have to keep these two things up in order to keep our lamp burning. And if we've lost the flame, we exercise these things in order to gain the flame back, to kindle the divine spark, if you will, like St. Theophan would say. So to some more kind of positive ways and to look at this time, right? In these last days, when the breath of the Antichrist pollutes land and sea and every breath of life, God fans the activity of noetic noetic prayer in the bosom and the heart of the church like a refreshing dew of grace, like the breeze heard by the prophet Elijah as an antidote for the health and salvation of soul and body in the days that are upon us and those to come. Iran Ephraim, Arizona. So while we are faced with all of these challenges, God gives more grace. What does St. Paul say? Where sin is, grace abounds all the more. So while we look into the face of adversity and we look 
uh, to the reality where we're living, God gives more grace to become holy people. Look at this last you know, century. How many saints? It's incredible. Almost more saints and martyrs in the last 100 years than in multiple centuries combined. Even men who have died as late as the 90s or the early 2000s, people who have died just you know, in December, like the person I quoted. Saints living in modern times. So grace abounds all the more. And God gives a refreshment to his people. We are not abandoned. Though the world has abandoned us and left us, you know, quote unquote, what it thinks behind. God is still feeding his people. And even if we become a small remnant. Amidst a sea of other things. It is God that is still feeding his church and his lambs and his sheep. And giving us grace. St. Gabriel of Georgia, this is a saint that, that suffered under communism. He says, The signs of the times are everywhere, all around us. Yet hardly anyone wants to see it. The end is soon approaching, and anyone who has not found love will be swept away in the deluge. The door to the ark is not yet shut. There is still mercy left for us. We must take every moment left as an opportunity to move closer to Christ. Don't waste time by unnecessarily obsessing and arguing with hard-headed people over the signs of the times. Spend your time plowing the field so you can find the treasure. Only those who have found the treasure will be saved. Don't be like the foolish virgins. Be sure that you aren't caught at midnight without oil in your lamp. In the end times, a man will be saved by love, humbleness, and kindness. Kindness will open the gates of heaven. Humbleness will lead him into heaven. A man whose heart is filled with love will see God. So we must live a transfigured life. Be people of love, of humility, of faith. And even as we look at all of these things as the weeks go on, we're not looking at them to scare us into you know, being repentant people. We're looking at them just to, be, to have a sober outlook on our life. And while we look at them, we will constantly be remembering and talking about the ways in which God has given his grace to deal with these problems that face us. So Christ is calling us. Just a little bit from Father George Calcio. His Romanian, <clears throat> Romanian priest, he suffered in the, the, the concentration camps in Romania. He was part of the quote-unquote re-education experiment that the communists basically took an entire population of certain age group and put them into these concentration camps in order to re-educate them away from their orthodox faith and to embrace communism. They thought that, that if they eradicated, you know, the old people are going to die, but we eradicate the faith of the young people, 
then in a generation or so, everybody will be communist and embrace our ideology. So immense suffering, um, the, the, the concentration camps that he w- was part of, absolutely horrific and abominable. Afterwards, he came to America and was a priest here in America. But during, after one of his arrests, he was allowed back out into the public. He was a priest and he was a teacher, a professor, and he wasn't allowed to teach anymore. So he had a groups of young people come to him at night in the middle of the night and he would give them these, you know, these talks, these lectures. And they were all entitled, you know, the first one was entitled, Christ is calling you, Christ is calling you. And I want to read a little bit from it because I think that it is uh, very inspiring and it's something that we should, you know, take to heart these days. He says, I call you to, to a much higher flight, to total abandonment, to, act, to an act of courage which defies reason. I call you to God to the one who tra- that transcends the world, so that you might know an infinite heaven of spiritual joy, the heaven which you presently grope for in your personal hell, and which you seek even while in a state of non-deliberate revolt. Jesus has always loved you, but now you have the choice to respond to his invitation. In responding, you are ordained to go and bear fruit that will remain to be a prophet of Christ in the world in which you live, to love your neighbor as yourself, and to make all men your friends, to proclaim by every action this unique and limitless love, which has raised man from the level of a serf to a friend of God, to the prophets of of this liberating love, which delivers you from all constraint, returning to you your integrity as you offer yourself to God. So we must be moved within. We have to have an orthodoxy that is respond, responding to Christ's call within. You know, It is not enough for us to be orthodox Christians by name, especially in these times. We have to be orthodox Christians who are transfigured people and living an inner life. We have to build a spiritual foundation because a spiritual foundation is the only thing that will not be shaken by the times that we are living in and times to come. You know, we can't be completely naive to think that things will be getting much, much better because it doesn't seem to be going that way. And even if they do go that way, we have to prepare ourselves for the ways that maybe they will not go when they continue to divorce themselves from a true spiritual life. So just to recap a little, we have to be aware of where we're at, what we are living in, the demands society presses upon us. We have to know that this is where we are beginning in this world. We're not coming into the church just like a month later we're at exalted states of prayer. We have to know that this world, as much as we look at it, is part of us. And it forms our understanding and our outlook in some way or another. 
and we have to eradicate those things from our life and begin to take things from the secular world that help us to cultivate a true spiritual life so that we have an outlook that is orthodox and live an inner life so that we have an orthodox worldview that is framed by a a genuine, down-to-earth, spiritual life. We have to answer Christ's call, both for ourselves and for the salvation of the world around us. As these times begin to get darker, Christ's transfiguration is never going to fade. And the transfiguration of Christians is never going to fade. We might be forced out of our bushels, right? And become lampstands on hills. And we have to be prepared to be that light when, that come, when it comes our time. So as we go through these lectures, we're going to go through them with sobriety and look at them with you know, spiritual eyes and some formation from both ancient saints and modern saints and and holy people in order to help us give us some kind of guide or a framework which to work by, you know, to to navigate through, through what is coming our way or what has already come our way. So God bless you, you know. Hopefully all of these uh, things help to inspire you and to give you some, uh, some drive to, to work towards an inner life, all of us, a more firm inner life, a more firm answer to Christ's calling at every moment of our life. Let's stand and uh, close with prayer. It is truly me to bless thee, the Theotokos, ever blessed and all blameless and mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim and beyond compare more glorious than the seraphim, who without corruption gave us birth to God the Word, and our truly Theotokos, thee do we magnify. Through the prayers of our holy fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen. Right. Thank you, Father. You're welcome.